1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a
2: fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: With both lofty eulogies and angry protests, the funeral of Japan's former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo revealed a sharp rift in the country we investigate the links between Mr. Abe's murder, a cult-like religious group, and Japan's political future. And 3D printing has a couple
2: of obvious limits. The size of the printer and the range of its nozzle. Recently, however, researchers have begun to look for ways to transcend those limits, and they're taking inspiration from insects.
1: First up, though, Iran has been gripped by protests in recent days, not just in big cities, but across all 31 of its provinces. It began 12 days ago when a young woman named Masa Amini was stopped on the streets for wearing her hijab too loosely. She died in custody. Authorities say she had a medical incident. Her family and most Iranians believe she was beaten to death. The protests that began in her hometown have spread. Rome. To call them defiant would be an understatement. Women gather around bonfires, adding their headscarves to the flames. Men cheer them on. In many places, security forces have come down hard. And dozens, perhaps scores of people, have been killed in the streets. At their funerals, mourners only display more defiance. Women cut their hair with kitchen scissors and encourage further demonstrations. This has come to be about far more than just the heavy hands of the morality police. These protests seem to have unearthed a far wider, deeper discontent. The hardline president, Ibrahim Raisi, has promised to deal decisively with the unrest. But that has been looking like an increasingly hard pledge to fulfill.
3: I think there's a sense that Iran has been stepping into the unknown ever since protests erupted after the death of Masa Amini.
1: Nicholas Pelham is our Middle East correspondent.
3: We're now in the middle of a second week of protests. The protests have gone on for much longer than in recent years. It isn't something that the authorities seem to have been able to slip in the bud. And anger is really at a level in Iran that I don't think observers or Iranians themselves have recalled for many, many years. And I think there's a sense that we're taking a step into the unknown. It's really not clear at the moment how long these protests are going to continue and what success the authorities are going to have in suppressing them. And as each day goes on with yet another round of protests. At this stage, many Iranians are perplexed as to just who's going to come out on top and how much longer this standoff is going to continue.
1: So what's it like on the ground? Have you been able to speak to anyone?
3: Part of the problem is that it's just very difficult to get a clear picture because the authorities have cut off internet. It's become increasingly difficult to tap into what is actually taking place. That's what I have managed to get through to some people in Iran. I spoke to a student at university. She's the same age as Masa Amini, the woman who seems to have been beaten to death. We've revoiced her words to protect her identity, but she described the scenes of the security forces opening fire.
4: They've gone and they're killing everyone. I saw on the streets there's so many people killed by the government for this.
3: She was hearing gunshots and she said that even then that still hadn't deterred the protesters. And rather than deter Iranian women, news of Masa Amini's death has really inspired them to go out onto the streets, to take off their veils, to burn them in front of the security forces, to chant for liberation, to demand their right to be able to wear what they want. And Massa Amini has really been this sort of catalyst that has brought tens of thousands of women out onto the streets to defy the authorities and walk around the streets without a veil.
1: Are people are afraid. Are they
3: putting the hijab back
4: on? No, I'm not afraid. This morning, I went out without the scarf. I walked all the streets without the scarf.
3: And it's about freedom for these women.
4: I want my freedom. I want to wear everything I want. And this is what I want. And I'm not afraid.
1: And so Ms. Amini's death seems to, to really have hit a nerve here about, about women's rights and, and freedoms. I think that's absolutely
3: the case, that this has really brought women out onto the streets in very large numbers, but it's also tapping into a broader nerve. The protests have moved on from solely being about whether women can walk on the streets with or without a veil. It's become less a question of Islamic dress, but about the very nature of the Islamic Republic. And I do get the sense that many Iranians, in their chance against the authorities, are not just focused on the hijab on the veil. They're focused on how they can end clerical control of their lives and move from being a theocracy into, I think for many of them, what they're seeking is a democracy. They've been in a country which has clamped down in recent years on social freedoms, on political expression. The system in many ways has become much more brittle. In the past, there was scope for those who wanted to see reform of the movement. And increasingly, we've seen the state slip into the hands of hardliners and That's really meant that the flexibility that did exist in the system has disappeared. And many Iranians have just simply had enough. They want to have a fresh start.
1: You say many Iranians have have had enough, but this is mostly a, a women's protest, isn't it?
3: It isn't just women who are on the streets. They're very much there. They're on the front lines. They're egging people on. But there are equal numbers of men from the reports that I've heard from protesters on the ground. And one of the people that I spoke to, he's a young tech professional who'd found a way around the internet outage, told me what he was seeing on the streets of Tehran. We're protecting his identity too and we've got an actor to voice what he said.
5: They're taking off their scarves, waving it, and they're standing in front of riot police fearlessly. They're getting beat up. But they're trying to even act as bait. I've seen they have no qualms in doing whatever is necessary to get their goal, which is the end of the regime and equal rights.
3: So, this isn't just about the hijab, it's about the kind of social controls that come with living in a theocracy. It's about the presence of the morality police patrolling the streets. It's about a sense of a regime that really doesn't seem to have answers to any of the enormous problems that Iran has. It hasn't found a way out of sanctions. It hasn't found a way to get back into the global economy. It's facing huge environmental problems and the authorities just don't seem to be equipped to deal with the scale of them. Poverty has soared. Inflation is over 50%. GDP per capita has sort of plummeted in the last 10 years. It's down from about $8,000 per annum to under three. And Iranians have had enough of living under a system that can't address the economic malaise and social ills of the country.
1: And how has the government responded so far to all these protests?
3: Ibrahim Raisi, the president, has given orders to security forces to use what means they have to suppress the demonstrations. It does appear as if the crackdown is intensifying. That said, at the moment, the authorities seem very much focused on trying to stop protests. And it's really striking from speaking to people in Iran now that, you know, women are walking around the streets as if the mandatory veil had gone. There's a sort of new mood of defiance. People are going out in the streets and dressing as they want. And police are probably too preoccupied, at least for the time being, to stop them they're very much focused on trying to break up and disperse protests. And in fact, there's, you know, one person I spoke to was concerned that if one of the reasons why the protests are likely to continue is that if they stop, the authorities would carry out even larger numbers of mass arrests, that this is almost a way of trying to keep the authorities at bay from uh, going after picking off individuals again or reimposing some of the social controls that I think Iranians feel, at least for now, they've managed to free themselves from. It also has to be said, I think, that this is a deeply polarized place at the moment. There are many conservative Iranians, there are religious Iranians, and some of the Iranians I've spoken to from conservative families say that they're not quite concerned about going out on the streets just from the hassle and the harassment and abuse they might get from those who are supporting the protesters. So you're looking at a a deeply polarized Iran.
1: And in that deeply polarized era, then where do you see all of this heading?
3: There have been calls for a, a national strike. So far, it doesn't seem that the country has Yet, ground to a standstill. If those calls for strike action do intensify at the moment, most of the action seems to be limited to universities. If those spread, then that's going to be an indicator of where things are going. I think you're looking at now at a business community that is just waiting to see which way this is going. But ultimately, this is a regime which has had 40 years of dealing with protest, of dealing with dissent, that knows that it's deeply unpopular. There are some. In the system, who believe that with half a million supporters, they can control a population of 84 million. They've also learned from the downfall of the Shah when they came to power that what you don't do is to retreat in the face of protest. They have the guns, they're going to use them. The population is also very experienced at protest. You're seeing one round of protests follow another with increasing rapidity. It used to be that they would take place sort of every once a decade. Now they're taking place several times a year. There's a sense in which something has to give that this is a regime which is running out of answers You've got a supreme leader who's in his final years. It's not clear what the succession looks like. I think there is now a really open question about what happens to the Islamic Republic. And the protesters obviously feel that they have the regime in their sights and they conceive of a life beyond the Islamic Republic of Iran.
1: Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us. Jason, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
5: Yesterday afternoon, Abe Akie, the wife of former Japanese Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, emerged from a black car wearing a black kimono, carrying her husband's ashes.
1: Noah Snyder is our Tokyo bureau chief.
5: She walked alongside the current Japanese Prime Minister, Kishida Fumio, past an honor guard dressed in crisp whites, into the Budokan in central Tokyo, where I was seated alongside foreign dignitaries, Japanese elites, and other members of the press who had gathered for the state funeral for the late Prime Minister, who was shot during a campaign speech in July, stunning a nation where gun violence is extremely rare. Mr. Kishida delivered the first of several eulogies, praising Mr. Abe for leaving a transformative legacy in foreign and defense policy especially. Yet, outside the venue, a different scene played out, one that hinted really at the divisive legacy that Abe left behind here in Japan. Some well-wishers left flowers outside the venue. One woman, whom my colleague Moika Iida spoke to, called Abe the best prime minister we've ever had and said that she always thought that as long as Abe was around, Japan would be safe. Nearby, another group had come to protest, rallying against the idea of the funeral itself and against Abe's own legacy. The scene shows just how far the killing of Mr. Abe has rippled through Japan and the really profound consequences it's left in the Japanese political scene.
1: So you're describing a kind of split-screen moment here, tributes on one hand and protests on the other. What's going on? So
5: Abe Shinzo was a successful politician, to be sure, the longest-serving prime minister in Japan's modern history. And he was lauded abroad for his efforts on the international stage. But at home, he was always a divisive figure. And his funeral has reopened some of the same debates that left the country riven during his tenure. After the initial shock of the assassination wore off, the idea of having a state funeral for Mr. Abe also started to look less and less attractive in the public's eye. A lot of people see it as an attempt to make criticism of Abe's legacy taboo, to discourage debate over the implications of the policies he enacted while in office. And at the same time, the country has been enthralled to stories unspooling the motivations of Mr. Abe's killer, Yamagami Tatsuya, who declared that he had killed Abe not because of his policies, but because of his links to a cult-like religious organization called the
1: Unification Church. And so what is the Unification Church?
5: The Unification Church was founded first in South Korea in the 1950s. You might know them as the Moonies after their founder, the Reverend Moon. And they came to Japan in the 1960s, where they made common cause on anti-communist grounds with that generation of Japanese conservative leaders, including Abe's grandfather, Kishinobosuke, who served as prime minister at the time. They spread widely in Japan, as they did in many other parts of the world. They are known in large part for their practice of having mass weddings. And the Unification Church has people in Japan on edge for several reasons. One of which is the talk of cults in Japan naturally evokes some unpleasant memories, unpleasant history. And in particular, the tragic attack by Aum Shinrin Rikyo. A kind of doomsday cult who released sarin gas on a Tokyo subway in 1995. The Unification Church obviously hasn't done anything remotely like that. But this sense of sort of operating in the background, out of sight of society, has really upset a lot of people in Japan. And even more so as the depth of the group's ties to the Liberal Democratic Party, the ruling party, have come to light. Many figures in the LDP, it turns out, have links to the group, either appearing at their events or having their members work as volunteers on campaigns. And Tatsuya, Mr. Abe's killer, has said he was motivated by a desire to enact revenge for the misfortune that his family fell into after his mother got embroiled with the church. The family was driven to bankruptcy because of her large donations to the group. His father killed himself. And so he's transformed in the past couple of months in the public eye into a troubled but really sympathetic figure. And some folks have even sent gifts, including cash and clothes and food and manga to the prison where he's currently being held.
1: And so there are ongoing political effects then of Mr. Abe's killing?
5: There are, Jason, and not in the way you might expect. Rather than a sort of rally around the flag effect, I think what we're seeing here is more a rally against the flag. Both the revelations about the LDP's links with the unification church and the decision to host this rare state funeral for Mr. Abe have fueled frustration with the government and have really done damage to Mr. Kishida's standing. His attempts to put the scandal to bed have compounded the problems. He slow rolled the response initially, hoping the story would fade, but instead it really has dominated Japanese media, especially television coverage in recent months. He tried to reshuffle his cabinet to distance himself from the Unification Church, but then it turned out that 20 or more ministers and vice ministers in his new cabinet also have some form of connection to the group. The LDP tried to hold an internal investigation. Their internal survey found that nearly half of their lawmakers had some links to the group from receiving support for campaigns to attending events. So uh, all of it only further fueled the intrigue.
1: So does this pose a real political danger then to Mr. Kashida?
5: It's getting into dangerous territory for him. He had been really riding high for most of his now one year in office. His approval ratings were consistently above 50%, even above 60% in some polls. Days after Mr. Abe's killing, he led the party to a, a big victory in upper house elections. But his ratings have just plummeted in the two months since. Now most major polls are showing disapproval, outpacing approval of his administration. Nikkei, which is a big Japanese media giant, have his approval down to 43% from a high of more than 65% in May. And some polls even show him slipping down below 30%, which is seen as a critical threshold when folks inside Mr. Kishida's party might start to think about whether they were better off with someone else. Now, much of this is down to what we've talked about, the fallout from Mr. Abe's killing. But it's not only that. You know, Kishida might have been able to sort of arrest this slide if he had more policy Accomplishments to fall back on. But his record for the year is a bit thin on major policy victories. And he's also dealing with an inflation and cost of living crisis, which is riling up voters in Japan. And that might be one reason why the government decided to intervene in the currency markets to prop up the yen last week for the first time in 24 years.
1: And so, with the funeral of Mr. Abe behind us now, where do you see this going?
5: The next few weeks and months are really going to be decisive for Mr. Kishida. His allies hope that the spectacle of yesterday's funeral, the parade of foreign leaders from America's vice president to Jordan's king, will change the public's mind about the necessity of this funeral, will remind people of why they liked and elected Abe so many times, and that ultimately the scandals and the fallout from his killing will be put in the past, that he really will be resting in peace. Um, If that doesn't happen, though. Kishida faces some tricky choices. He has to do something to change the conversation. One option might be holding a snap election, which his party would likely win, given that the Japanese opposition is a bit in shambles. But it might not save him from forces within his own party who would like to pull him down. Another way to change the conversation is to do something that gets people talking. And so he's signaled a desire, a willingness to move on some big policy issues from energy policy to defense policy, which would be a chance for him to lead and to leave a legacy of his own.
1: Noah, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
2: Insects are some of the best builders in nature these busy bees and wasps team up and deposit wax, raw wood pulp, or their own saliva to create complicated designs that end up being many times their size. And now, human designers are looking to the hive mind to improve their own constructions.
4: Insects like wasps and bees are fantastic natural builders. They build wasp nests, they build hives, and robotics researchers are trying to learn from them.
2: Abby Burtix writes about science for The Economist.
4: The scientists are trying to take inspiration from the insects to rethink 3D printing in a way that is more bottom-up.
2: Tell me more about that. How can studying insects improve 3D printing?
4: One of the current limitations that we have with 3D printing is that you only can build objects within the range of the nozzle. So the 3D printer is generally a box and the nozzle moves around, depositing layer of the 3D printing material around. But that means that we can't build something bigger or out of the range of the nozzle. The way that we can look at insects is insects are very good at making things that are way bigger than them. Like a hive is way bigger than the individual worker bee.
2: And so for the researchers, how does that work in practice? What does it look like?
4: In this case, there is a researcher, Mirko Kovac, at Imperial College London. He has developed this system of drones. He has two different types of drones. There are builder drones and scanner drones. So the builder drones are a little bit bigger. They have a nozzle and this kind of mechanical arm that allows them to maneuver around the nozzle and keep it stable during flight. These drones are the ones that are actually depositing the 3D printing material, whether it's foam, whether it's plastic, whether it's concrete or cement. You also have the scanner drones, which are responsible for monitoring the process and making sure that... The material is expanding properly, making sure that the design is going according to plan. So the builders will zoom in, they'll deposit their layer of material, and then they'll zoom out. And then the scanners will zoom in be like, is this okay? Where do we want to draw next? What is the next step? And they will print and adjust layer by layer, step by step.
2: So that's the process. What does the result look like? What have they built so far?
4: Being scientists, they wanted to have a proof of concept, and they chose a geometric shape, a cylinder, just so they could measure accuracy and see how well their system performed. The team of scientists wanted two different sorts of tests. The first one was to build a two meter tall foam cylinder. Foam is particularly tricky because when you build with it, you spray on a layer of foam and then it can expand. And it can expand up to 25 times the original volume. So there's a lot of error correction and manipulation that needs to happen. And then the second material that they wanted to test with is cement. It is sturdier, it's more precise, but it is heavier. And the end result was two cylinders, one foam, one cement that were accurate to within five millimeters, which is well within standard British building code.
2: So are these little robotic insects the future of manufacturing, do you think?
4: They're definitely very good at manufacturing and they're capable, but the researchers think that the bread and butter will probably first be in repair. So because they're drones and they're not constrained by the metal boxes of 3D printers, they can fix things in dangerous or otherwise inaccessible places. So they can spot and seal leaks in gas pipelines. The little builder robot can zoom over spray some of the expandable foam in a leak and repair it. It can also be used to fix craps on tall buildings where it might be really expensive or dangerous for humans to get up there on scaffolding. They can be deployed more quickly. They're cheaper. There's less risky humans. And also Dr. Kovach suggested that there could be a future for these construction robots on the surface of the moon or Mars.
2: Abby, thanks so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you, John.